Wednesday, October 6th, CSI, the global phenomenon, opens a brand new chapter in Las Vegas, and an existential threat calls the crime lab's legacy and future into question. A brilliant new team of investigators will enlist the help of friends from the past as they deploy the latest forensic techniques to do what they do best, follow the evidence, in order to preserve and serve justice in Sin City and uncover the truth. CSI Vegas series premiere Wednesday, October 6th on CBS. Hello, beautiful. I'm Amy Eric, founder of Madison Reed, a hair color company I named after my daughter. Experience gorgeous, lasting, high-quality hair color made with ingredients you could feel good about with consistent results every time. It's easy to find your perfect shade. Book a complimentary video hair color consultation with a licensed colorist on madison-reed.com and get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit. Use code RADIO10. That's code RADIO10. Life isn't fair, justice is blind and dysfunctional, and some cops aren't smart and dedicated, like on television. Everybody's restless, and they got no place to go. Someone's always trying to tell them something they already know. Today, we're going to sit down and talk with Justin Ling. He is, among other things, a reporter with Vice News. He recently wrote a book uh, about the 2010-2017 Toronto serial homicides that occurred in the Church and Wellesley Corridor. This is Who Killed Teresa. Justin Ling, uh, welcome to the podcast, Who Killed Teresa? And you're the author of Missing from the Village, the story of serial killer Bruce MacArthur, the search for justice, and the system that failed Toronto's queer community, which has just been release, uh, released by McClellan Stewart, Penguin Random House, uh, in September. How's it going? Welcome. Thanks for having me. I mean, it's going as uh, I think as well as could be expected uh, during the circumstances. It, uh, I I feel you. <laughs> yeah, I, I certainly feel you. Um, definitely. Uh, are you currently in Toronto at this moment? I mean, I'm actually in Montreal right now. Oh. We uh, we sort of decamped to Montreal not long before the pandemic. Oh, wonderful! I grew yeah. up in Montreal, so fantastic. Oh, well, fantastic! Cool. Yeah. Um, so I'll I'll get um, right to it, uh, Justin. And because I have a listenership not only in Canada but a big listenership in the United States and in the UK, I'd love for you to kind of give us an introduction uh, to the story of the missing and murdered uh, persons um, from Toronto in the early two thousands. For someone who may not be familiar with the story. What are we really talking about here, and and kind of how did it develop? Yeah, so you know this story goes all the way back to 2010 when uh, a man by the name of Skandaraj Navaratnam, that Tamil refugee from Sri Lanka, disappeared from the gay village in Toronto. Um, you know he was, you know, by all accounts, pretty well adjusted. He had been in Canada for you know upwards of a decade. Had a good kind of broad circle of friends. You know, nothing was really out of the ordinary in his life. He had just adopted a puppy. You know, he vanished after Labor Day weekend in September, and it was incredibly uncharacteristic. You know, there were there were all of these sort of red flags everywhere. You know, the 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 village, the gay village that was, sort of stood up and, and kind of realized think, many of the people who knew him, something was quite a mess. You know, a local gay bar in the area turned into sort of an organizing hub for people to show up and 
trade information, collect missing persons posters. And the, the, the police in Toronto, you know, as far as I can tell, took this disappearance relatively seriously. You know, there were credit card checks, cell phone checks, so on and so forth, but just nothing turned up. It was you know, an incredibly unusual disappearance. There's not that many disappearances that are, you know, this devoid of evidence. But ultimately, there was no answer. You know, there, there was no kind of firm um, suggestion of what had happened to him. So, frankly, you know, the police and the city sort of moved on. A couple months later, another man disappeared from Toronto, also spent a lot of time in the village, you know, also went a lot of, to a lot of the same bars. It did not appear to know Skanda, Skandarak Navaratnam, but um, you know, vanished you know, from just a couple blocks away. Police didn't manage to figure out the connection between those two cases at the time. Even when a third man went missing in early 2012, similar circumstances, lived in the neighborhood, went to the same bars, knew some of the same people, vanished without a trace. There was no real connection drawn between the three. It wasn't until 2013 that police sort of out of the blue came out and said, we think these three missing persons cases are connected. And it was at that point the city sort of, you know, the village in particular sort of stood up and said, you know, something's quite wrong here. Something is, you know, very much amiss. And around that time, you know, that's when I first sort of noticed the story. It's when a lot of people started kind of leaning on the cops and saying, this looks like a serial killer. We need to be taking this seriously. The oddest thing for me in this whole story is that after about a month of panic and paranoia and worry, the story just sort of goes away. The police investigation sort of drags on for a few months later, but ultimately gets shut down in early 2014. The media moves on. The city sort of forgets about it. And for years, there was no update. There was no news, no investigation. Apart from me, to be totally honest, there was no revisiting of these cases until the summer of 2017, just after the city's Pride Festival, when another man disappeared quite prominently. He was well-known, well-liked, big circle of friends. He was a community activist. And he just vanished into thin air right after the Pride Parade. And it was at that point the city realized something was quite wrong all over again. The police opened a proper investigation, realized that there was not just one more missing person's case, but two. So now there was a sum total of five very mysterious, very sudden, abrupt disappearances. And that investigation dragged on for you know upwards of five months until finally, in early 2018, police made the pretty shocking announcement that they had made an arrest in the case. You know, 66, I think at the time, year old Bruce MacArthur. And quickly realized, again, it was worse than they imagined. It wasn't five victims. It was eight. Three men had disappeared in the ensuing years without anyone really noticing. So, yeah, you realize it's sort of a, a broad and, and, and wide explanation. But, you know, it, it, I think what's always staggering to me is just how long this went on for and just how many times people had to sort of poke the city and the police and the media and say, Something has gone really wrong here. And despite all that, you know, nothing really came of it until way too late. Yeah, it's interesting because um, I I had uh, Jessica McDiarmid and Gladys Reddick on the program. And one of the questions I asked them was, um, you know, what surprised them the most? And um, uh, they both almost rang in at the same time that they said it was surprising to them or frustrating that they even had to write the book Highway of Tears to begin with, yeah. that it took that long. I think I think in the case of the Highway of Tears, Highway 16, it took over a decade for the story to even clip over to the national press. It was really much a Western story. And you, you kind of mentioned that, that you had you had three people missing and by... Uh, 2015, none of the major newspapers in Canada had revisited these stories. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. And I'm still sort of grappling with why that is, right? You know, I think to some degree, newspapers and, and, and television stations 
are really loath to posit their own theories here, right? So you have the police who, particularly in Canada, are loath to comment publicly on anything. So, and you have a media that are sort of skittish and afraid and very conservative about, you know, offering what I think are very credible theories about, you know, major crime cases. And what you get in the end is just this, this sort of vacuum of information, right? So when I was writing these stories about these missing men, I came out and said it. You know, I said the the strong possibility is that there's a serial killer. It is not common. It is extremely, unbelievably uncommon and unlikely that you have the, the type and, and style of disappearances that we have here and victims or missing persons who resemble each other, both in appearance and lifestyle, so acutely. You know, the, the first three missing men were all in their 40s or 50s, all South Asian or Arab, all bearded, all around the same height and general build, and all of whom went on the same dating apps and went to the same bars. It, it is unfathomable that three people who resemble each other that closely would vanish into thin air without any kind of trail or credit card statement or cell phone ping or you know, rogue email or whatever. But nobody was willing to say that. And it strikes me as really dangerous, to be totally honest. You know, well, if you were a reporter in the downtown east side of Vancouver in, in you know, the late 90s, early 2000s, and people were telling you, hey, listen, we haven't seen six of the girls who work here recently. The responsible thing to do would be to come out and say, hey, listen, this is this is the telltale sign of a serial killer when people start disappearing from neighborhoods that get overlooked. And how much, um, I mean, we haven't really kind of just nailed it, but how much do you think plays into it the fact that four of the victims were named, or the initial victims, Skanda, Basir, Hamid, and Salim, and, and the fourth one was named Andrew, the very prominent one who was known in the community. I mean, you, you talk a little bit about missing white woman syndrome and how this was kind of similar to that. Certainly in, in the Highway of Tears case, I, I don't think it, it has been, some have been critical of the fact that it wasn't until Nicole Hoare disappeared, who was white, and somebody said, well, yeah, she was from a Tony neighborhood. So all of a sudden people started to Pay attention. Um, how much? How much do you think that played into it? I mean, I think I know your answer, but yeah, I think it's a huge. I think it's a huge factor. I mean, you know, one thing that does bug me in the story is that sometimes the media tends to sort of smooth over all of the cases and say, "Well, they were all marginalized, and that's why no one took it seriously," which isn't quite right, to be totally honest. Like, let me let me really quickly go through. You know, the eight victims of this case. Please. If Skanda was the first to go missing, he, he was marginalized in some respects. He was racialized. He was a refugee. He was struggling with PTSD by many accounts. But on the flip side, I mean, he had a lot of social currency. He had a big circle of friends. He had a good job. He had his own place. He just adopted a puppy. He was, he was fine financially. You know, he was not living on the margins of society in any respect. The second victim was, was Bassier. He was married with kids. You know, he was, he had a well-paying job. He was doing relatively well. The third victim was, was named Hamid. You know, he struggled in some respects. You know, his friends acknowledged he struggled with drug use and alcohol. But again, you know, he had a family and a group of friends who supported him. He had his own place. You know, the fourth victim, there's some timeline issues, but generally speaking, the fourth victim, Sarush, um, again, married with a, with a stepkid, good-paying job, struggled with, his past as well, but, you know, lives relatively comfortably. Dean was the fifth, fifth victim. He was homeless and, you know, did experience, you know, addiction issues. And, and certainly that had a huge role to play in the fact that he was never reported missing. Krishna Kumar was next. He was, you know, a refugee who came aboard the MV Sun Sea, which docked in uh, on the coast of Vancouver in 2011. You know, he was in hiding in fear of being deported back to his native Sri Lanka, you know, Salim Essen was, you know, I think it's um, for a larger degree written off because he had, you know, drug addiction issues, but also had a, a loving partner who 
was trying to convince the police that you know he wouldn't just take off. And finally, there was Andrew, who um, you know who had a good job, had a huge circle of friends, had neighbors to look out for him. You know, had people who realized he went missing as soon as he disappeared. So you know, there is a complexity in these guys' past, and I think we do some disservice when we just sort of say, and I'm not accusing you of this, but I've seen the media do this a lot. You know, we, we do this disservice when we just say, oh, well, they were marginalized, and that's why they, you know, no one really took it seriously. The reality is, you know, people don't marginalize themselves. Systems and mm-hmm. society marginalize people, right? You know, systems and society and police and social service agencies decide that people are more likely to disappear or are less worthy of investigation or are, um, you know, prone to vanishing. But in fact, you know, that is, that is a judgment call that we need to start challenging a little more effectively you know our society says that white women don't disappear but eh, sometimes drug users or racialized people do but that's usually wrong there's actually very little evidence that supports that hypothesis and it's a really dangerous one that we keep keep being told enables and allows serial killers to get away with it and yet we seem to keep doing it and it's, it's absolutely baffling to me it, it's interesting because i do you're absolutely right. I mean, my point of entry with a lot of these things, one of the reasons I was attracted to to your book, which I, I it's really great, by the way, um, and and the Highway of Tears book, and I, I, I find my point of entry to be marginalized cultures and subcultures. But the more that I read these things and research them, the more I realize we're just talking about culture. We're really not, yeah. you know, it's it's not so separate and it's not so different. And, uh, you know, to be plucked off the streets like that. And one of, one of the things I really love about the book, I mean, you just cataloged, you know, nine of the victims, is the way you you made sure uh, to, to profile them and give them life, which I would imagine, given, you know, where they came from and, 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 uh, um, you know, it would have been very, very challenging to find a lot of that information. How, um, how was constructing that part of the book for you? Well, you know, some of it was hard, but some of it was, you know, worthwhile and it was interesting. It was quite doable. You know, I'll give you the example of, you know, Sarouche. And I think this is a great example of where a little more police work might have really helped the Toronto Police Service cracked this case earlier, especially when it comes to just kind of un, you know, unusual missing persons cases. Sarouche was um, a refugee to this country. He, he had language he had language barriers. He had you know, some struggles with addiction. But he had a wife and a stepkid, like I said, but he also had a, you know, a, a, a past in Canada that went back some, some 20 years. And if you went and looked through that path, you'd find a criminal record. Now, criminal records are sort of an awkward thing to dive into for a murder victim, yet they can be really instructive. So in his case, we saw that he he, had, you know, he clearly was struggling with you know, alcohol issues because he had a number of DUIs and driving with a suspended license. But we also what we also found was an assault charge. And the name on that assault charge was a male name, but when we tracked that person down, we found a woman who, you know, who who was happy to speak to us, had never really been called by the cop, um, who who told us this kind of very interesting story of, of Sarusha's background um, and, you know, actually let us in on the fact that he had spent some time in the gay village and that he had ties to many of the bars where these men had gone. To this point, police were still saying, we don't think Sarusha Mamoudi has any ties to the other victims or the village when, in fact, he had. Now, that interview, I think, told us a lot about that, about a lot of his backstory and you know, some of the ways in which you know, police may have written off his disappearance when it was first reported. But if, if they had called her up at the time, she may well have told them, listen, he has a lot of similarities to these other missing persons cases from just a couple of years ago. So I, I think that's what's really frustrating, kind of like you mentioned, you know, about uh, about some of these marginalization issues, is that you know they're they're sort of present everywhere, but they're not you know definitive in people's lives. The fact that he did you know, struggle with alcohol use 
should not have defined him, and it should not have defined the investigation into into his disappearance. I mean, there's so much more to it. Um, and I think you know you can you can make the same argument for the women who went missing on the Highway of Tears. You can make the same argument for the women who went missing on the downtown east side. You know, their backstories are relevant. They could have been helpful and instructive and useful if they had act you know accurately or adequately been investigated. Uh, how how much do you do you think because uh, it's 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 amazingly set up and then and then answered in the book um, Project Houston uh, how much do you feel the ex the the expectation of the community about what that what that task force set up by the Toronto Police the expectation of the community of what it was for and what ultimately you reveal it it ended up really being about how much do you think that it hindered things uh in the investigation early on it was something that i had you know, before working on the book had not entirely realized and it's that you know, this missing persons investigation which was set up in 2013 the one i mentioned that sort of kind of fixed you know transfixed the community it was when police announced it it was billed as an investigation into three missing men. When Bruce MacArthur was arrested, when they talked, you know, in hindsight about Project Houston, this investigation, they talked about it as an investigation into three missing men. But that's not how it started. It had started in 2012 thanks to a tip that came in from Swiss police. That's amazing. About the possibility of an online cannibalism ring that may have claimed the life of Gandon Everett. That tip, it was not entirely ludicrous, it's worth saying. The tip had some validity to it. But the Toronto Police Service spent upwards of six months and assigned 12 investigators to this tip, which had no evidence, really, to suggest was, was the explanation of for Skanda's disappearance. And when finally one of the cops on that team came up and said, hey, listen, I think there's actually two other disappearances that might be connected. Well, they finally get around to saying, okay, well, that's it. You know, let's look into that. They pulled off most of the investigators from the team and left the skeleton crew with just a very small budget to go and pursue the possibility that these three cases were connected, which, of course, in the end, they were. So it's, it's, to look back on that, it's so frustrating to see all of this money and resourcing being thrown after this. I, I, I don't, I'm using this, I'm use this word, it's going to be kind of awkward, this sexy investigation. Yeah. That if it were correct, would have made huge headlines and would have been an international story. But once they sort of realized that it's not a case of a cannibal murder, but in fact three very suspicious disappearances that could have pointed to a serial killer, and eh, well, the priority's not there anymore. That's really frustrating. Yeah. It's a really frustrating thing to realize after the fact. And Toronto Police have never really owned up to that. They've always sort of brushed it off and said, you know, it is what it is. But that is... Well, really... you, you write about the fact that yeah. you, you, you sort of say that, that the community felt gaslighted. Um... Yeah, I mean, it, and understandably. I mean, you know, every at every turn, the Toronto Police Service says we took this seriously. We always were attuned to the possibility of a serial killer. We followed the evidence. But, you know, at, at a lot of points in this investigation, you can point to spots where police didn't take that concern seriously, where police were off chasing these bizarre theories instead of, you know, confronting a more obvious reality. You know, there's, a, there's points in this investigation where you can very you concretely say that police chased the wrong suspect for no particular reason. They investigated uh, partners of some of these missing men, despite there being no evidence of this being a, you know, intimate partner violence, despite there being no evidence that the partner committed the crime. And it really kind of sets up this question of priorities. It sets up this question of, do the police take missing persons cases seriously? And unfortunately, the answer is no. 
police take missing persons cases seriously when they feel like it, when they hit the news, when there's clamoring for answers, when, frankly, it's somebody who you wouldn't expect to go missing, a banker from the financial district or a, you know, a, uh, a younger person or a white woman. You know, when you have those stories that hit the news and that have people gasping, that's when you see real resources dedicated, you know, real time and money being spent. When it's cases of people who are housing insecure, when it's cases who, of people who have addiction issues or who are refugees or who are queer or who have lives that aren't quite so neat and tidy, well, that's when you see police a bit indifferent, to be totally honest. So it is gaslighting to have them say now, oh, we always took it seriously. Well, you know, I only, mean... Yeah. Sorry. I mean, I'll take it one step further and to, because from personal experience, my, my my sister was a missing person for five and a half months and then later turned up murdered in Quebec in 1978. And I can tell you right now that that um, th they were were adamant to express that as a missing person, uh, they they made her disappearance fit their narrative, which was yeah. if she's a missing person then she's run away. If she's a missing person, she's pregnant and she's gone to a monastery. You know, all, yeah. this stuff that just came out of nowhere, a, fa a completely gaslit, fabricated narrative. Yeah, I don't know if the, I, I assume this phrase, I know this phrase doesn't translate to French quite as well, but um, the Toronto police frequently make references to people vacating their lives. <laughs> you know, this belief that people <laughs> sometimes just get overwhelmed and then, yeah. to Aruba or whatever. Yeah, yeah, like an like an elephant going to die or something, right? <laughs> it's like ridiculous. <laughs> it's pretty good. Compared, and, it, and it's and, you know, it, so let me give you an example of, of Basir Faizi. You know, Basir had fled civil war in Afghanistan with his wife and two daughters, and came to Toronto. You know, I think by in many respects he wasn't particularly happy with his wife. He was, you know, I think you could you could say that he was living in the closet. At the very least, he was. He was admitting he was bisexual, but didn't quite feel comfortable telling his family yet, and was struggling with that. He didn't like his job. He was frustrated with the city of Toronto. There's a whole bunch of things wrong with his life. I think he readily admitted that. But he also spent a lot of time in the village and had friends and had people he saw regularly and had a you know had his own little community in the village. The night he disappeared, he had made plans with somebody to see them a couple days later in the village. He drove his car to sort of the north of the village by about 10 minutes, the exact opposite way that, you know, of his condo. And his car was later found abandoned. His wallet and phone were missing, but his uh, bank cards and visa were never accessed again. He hadn't taken money out of an ATM recently. His passport was still at home. He had no other means of transportation. But police, when I called them years later, suggested that he had gone, and I'm going to use really aggressive scare quotes here, he had gone back home. <laughs> well, where the hell is home? You know, home was Toronto. Home was the village. You think he somehow forged a passport and made it back, back to Afghanistan with no money? Why? He admitted to his friends he didn't want to go back to Afghanistan, at least not in the midst of a war. So how is it that police could perform such you know intellectual acrobatics to get to that conclusion instead of coming to the way more obvious explanation was that he was murdered. And that um, that car was abandoned very close to the, the home where MacArthur worked as a gardener, right? Where he was he was putting body parts in plant potters, if I'm if I remember correctly. Yeah, it was so close that when I first was working on the story, I drove to where his car was found and in you know just wandering around the community ended up basically on the front lawn of the house where Bruce MacArthur had hidden the bodies. Right. It was walking distance. And yet police didn't manage to make that connection. It, it's, it's unbelievably frustrating to look back on. Because, again, if the police had just taken seriously the idea that foul play was involved, things may have been really different. And unfortunately, I think it was sort of left to the friends and family of these men. I mean... I don't think Bassier's wife would have been well-versed enough in the Canadian justice or, or policing system to know 
to make that you know line of inquiry a priority for them. And Toronto Police didn't seem keen to do it themselves. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. Justin Ling is joining us today. He's the author of Missing from the Village, story of serial killer Bruce MacArthur, the search for justice, and the system that failed Toronto's queer community. Justin, um, since it is, the title references the village um, for those who have lived there, and, and you certainly were living there at the time, is my understanding. I, I lived in the, in the village for a time, so you just kind of go, oh yeah, the gay village. But um, can you can you describe it for us what what it was like then, and particularly the sense of community, which comes across very very strong in the book, and you know the sense that the, the people who live there, who were 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 all part of this community, and, and cared for each other, just weren't buying what the the, the police were peddling. Yeah, I, I mean the the village is I think a very special neighborhood. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not the most nostalgic for it. I think there are pros and cons of it. I think the people who live in the immediate area, especially in these huge cooperative towers that sit right in the village itself, where one of the victims actually lives, you know, there is a sense of community. There is a sense of camaraderie, and you know, knowing your neighbors and knowing the people you see on the street, and you're gonna go, you're gonna bump into people that you know if you just. Kind of wander around for 10 or 15 minutes, which is unusual in many parts of Toronto, you know, Canada's largest city. But on the flip side, there is definitely a feeling that the village is losing some of that community. You know, for a time, especially when the story starts out, there were a lot more neighborhood bars and cafes and affordable housing in the area. And everyone would go to the neighbor, neighborhood hardware store and shop at the same grocery store and so on. Over time, you know, as housing pressures and gentrification have sort of been visited on the neighborhood, you've seen a lot of those places close. You've seen housing prices and rent prices skyrocket. You've seen you know, many establishments and, and pillars of the community get knocked down for condos. You know, one of the bars that actually at the center of the story is called Zippers where yes. you know, a lot of these victims had hung out that became that sort of organizing hub when some of these men went missing, you know, where a lot of these guys were last seen, actually. It was knocked down in 2016, I think, for a huge condo development mm. that will probably price out even more people in the neighborhood. So there was a sense, and there is a sense in many respects, of community and of, and of collection, collective action around this. But I think it's slowly slipping away, to be honest. And it it does sort of raise the question of if you start diffusing and sort of you know spreading around you know the the LGBTQ community, are you diffusing the sort of power it has as well? Are you are you making it easier for the less well off members to go missing or to disappear without anyone really realizing? You seem reluctant to even bring up the term serial killer in the book, like almost like you kind of choke on it. Um, and, and maybe I'm wrong, but can you, you 
talk about that a little bit? Was it was it about that it was kind of, as you say, um, improbable, but necessary? Is it the fact that that term and, dare I say it, true crime is just such a cliche right now? I, I'm glad that MacArthur, it's refreshing that he's not although he, he needs to, to some extent be a focus, he is not the prime focus of the book. Maybe my, my feeling was wrong about that, but there there does seem to be sort of like, do we really even have to put Serial Killer in the title of the book? Yeah, and somebody actually pointed out to me that uh, recently that it's almost odd that the words Serial Killer and Bruce MacArthur appear in the, in the subhead for the book, considering <laughs> they appear almost, infrequently in, in the book itself. Um, but yeah, I, I think it was, if not outright intentional, sort of uh, a result of me really hating the true crime genre. Yeah. Especially what it's become over the last couple of years as you know, Netflix and podcast money have, have poured in. You know, I don't know what your relationship with this sort of cottage industry is, but I find it especially around this case, you know, in, in, especially in Canada where we have very few cases of serial killers, the cottage industry that exists, exists descends on every case that, that pops up. It's and way out of proportion. It, Absolutely. It, it, it is, and you don't tend to see these armchair psychologists come out of the woodwork to offer their supposed expertise on you know, missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls who have not been found or, or whose cases have not been solved over the years. You don't tend to see them come out of the woodwork when communities are suggesting a serial killer may be operating, particularly sex workers who operate in many cities across the country who regularly act as sort of an early warning system for these sort of predators. You don't see those, you know, let's say amateur psychologists or sociologists or criminologists pop up, but you do hear from them when there's a, an arrest that's been made. And I don't think these people are, you know, necessarily nefarious or well or ill-intentioned, but I get really sick of seeing headlines like, you know, this profiler predicted the case or, you know, this profiler pointed to Bruce MacArthur before police caught them. I know who you're talking about. Did. <laughs> I feel bad because yeah, and I think people can piece together who I'm talking about. I feel bad because I I, I think there's a, 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 an interest in helping, but it's not helping, and 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 they're not even the worst. They're by far not the worst. The worst are the people who think that they can investigate these these cases themselves. The worst are the people who constantly harass and and contact victims, friends, and family, and officers, and everybody else. To try to get to the bottom of things, but in the end, you know, have have no expertise, have no idea what they're doing, are often just conspiracy theorists. And finally, there's you know the worst class of people are the class who think true crime and, and serial killers and murder is a fun you know beach read and, and a fun hobby that they can you know, sit and, and laugh over. You know there are podcasts that literally turn homicide into a joke without any regard or respect for. The people who have been hurt by these cases. You, you are, you, you are talking to the right guy because I am, I am, a, I am. <laughs> I, I, assume, I imagine I, you're quite well aware. Yeah, I am reluctantly part of that club, and 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 you know, it, people know I have a book with Penguin Random House too called "Wish You Were Here," and and I kind of choked when they put "serial killer" in the title, and um, but. You know, they said to me, you know, it's COVID right now. We're struggling. So I reluctantly, but it's cataloged that way. I personally f wish it was cataloged like Missing from the Village as social science, because that's what I, it just so happens that the book does involve me piecing together a serial killer. But it, I'm not interested in, in every aspect of these things. But people had asked me, why didn't I go back an interview in the book, the original victims, because I didn't need to, and they didn't need to yeah. be traumatized again. And I have my notes from 15 years ago when I talked to them. Thank you very much. And there was absolutely no need to go down that route again. So absolutely, I I um I have well, a distaste for. I think for that's it. right. I think I think as long as you grapple with these stories with a sense of ethics and with the sensitivities of trauma and with an understanding that you're. The, what you're doing is meant to, you know, 
comfort victims, hopefully, but optimistically change systems and make policing better and to stop this from happening again. If those are your you know, mission statements, I think there's a lot of good that comes from you know, these books and these podcasts and these movies. But your mission statement is, yeah. you know, well, look at this. You know, yeah. That, I mean, sorry, I, I just need to get this out. It is. It's what I always have to, people yeah. make the mistake of thinking John Allure is a guy who wants to link every single murder in Quebec. And it's like anyone who, is, who has read me or listened to me over the years knows that what I'm linking is criminal investigative failures within police agencies. That's always what it's been. That's the link. Yeah. And, and there's a tremendous value in that. And there's also a tremendous value in looking at cases that don't get all of the attention, right? I mean, it, it is mystifying and frustrating to see so much, you know, focus and attention and energy and resources chase after relatively few cases as there are hundreds of under-investigated and underserved outstanding missing persons and cold case homicide cases that don't get the Hollywood treatment. And that, you know, and, and then finally, and, and finally there's an entire, like I said, there's an entire industry that preys on these cases, that laughs at them, who's, and their mission statements are not, let's bring justice or comfort. It's, let's give, you know, board, and I, I don't mean to profile it this way, but I know who they target. It's, let's give bored white women something to do. And it's it's sick. It's it's gross. Well, and, well you, know, you, you, you targeted the you, you named the demographic. It's absolutely right. And and it, it yeah. you know, I've often said that people treat this like a parlor game. And I can tell you right out of the bat, like people who don't know me very well, who found out I was writing a book, one one person who was a former work association associate, she you know, you know, she she left where I work years ago, but her first in, you know, she felt compelled to contact me on Facebook and say, oh, I hear you have a, a book out on true crime. What did she, she said, I love murder mysteries. And yeah. I, I was like, are you, that's, that's my heart on a plate. It's, it's yeah. not a murder mystery. Yeah. 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 If, you want, if you like murder mysteries, go read Agatha Christie. Or go read a Jack the Ripper book. You know, go read a book where all of the folks who have been involved in it have been dead for 50 years. Right. Go, go do that. You know, don't glob on to a case where there were still in many ways open wounds, right? It's, it's, it's horrible. And these people just don't seem to care or acknowledge the consequences for their actions. And it's really unfortunate. I, I, I am completely with you, brother. Completely. <laughs> um, we, so you, you're in Montreal now. Did you leave Toronto? Did you burn out on this case? I guess is what I want to know. I didn't burn it on the case. Um, I burned it on Toronto for sure. It is a city that's become unaffordable and, and in many cases unwelcoming. You know, my, my plan for this year was to keep. You know, my plan has always been to, to spend a you know a huge amount of time in Toronto. Uh, I've always spent time on the road, kind of going back and forth across the country. Um, unfortunately, the pandemic has made that difficult. Uh, but I'm, I actually am still actively working on a couple of other. Uh, outstanding cases that have been sort of on the margins of this story that hopefully we might be able to offer some more details on and, and value to uh, in the coming months. Great. And I'm curious, as a journalist, you you seem to straddle interesting worlds. I mean, you, you, you were with Vice. I don't know if you're back with Vice, but you've been with, with old guard news agencies like the CBC, you had your own podcast, um, Globe and Mail. Oh, that that's interesting I, for somebody who's surviving that way in in this industry. Can can you talk a little bit about that? And because I think a lot of us don't don't really know anymore how journalism operates. To be quite honest. Yeah, I mean, I'm, frankly, you know, I, I think I'm in a, a unusual spot in the industry. There's not that many people who. You know, to be totally blunt, do as many things as I do. I, you know, I, I do write for you know, old guard newspapers. I do write for online outlets like Vice. Um, I do podcasting and audio documentaries, and I do some video uh, work as well. So I, you know, and of course, I also write this book. So I am kind of all over the place, and I do kind of cover everything from politics to policy to policing to defense and security. 
so it, it, it's it, it sort of is you kind of need to be everywhere and doing everything to make being freelance and being independent work. Um, but it's it's great because it gives you the freedom to go and say I'm going to take a year off and, and just focus on these stories, you know, these these cases or these missing persons investigations, or to, to you know say I don't feel like the rest of the people, the rest of the media are doing an adequate job here. So I'm going to do it myself. You don't need permission from an editor in most cases. You can almost always find someone who's going to pay for it. Um, at least in my case, I'm, I'm lucky enough to have some sway with various outlets. Um, you, you know, you don't need permission from the company lawyers. You don't need permission from you know the higher ups. You can tend to find. I have been able to find a constituency for all of the work that I've wanted to do and have you know, thought it important to do. Um, I mean, generally speaking, I, you know, I will tell you there was, a, there was a time when I was working on this story in particular when I had a hard time convincing editors to care. Uh, luckily, like I said, I, I found a few who really did, but I went into meetings saying, listen, you know, these missing persons cases are not normal or usual, and I do think there's a serial killer, and I don't think they're going to catch him. And editors sort of gave me the shrug and said, oh, you know, doesn't really have an ending. We're not. We're not really interested. <laughs> and behind their eyes was a little bit of you know the community doesn't. The, the city at large doesn't care. So why should we? Mm. So it's it can be a tough industry, but I am pretty happy with where I'm at. Good. Um, I don't want to. I um, don't want to lose track of the time. I, I also don't want to lose track. I got some things I want to still kind of prod around with. Um, the chapter surveillance. Um, which is really, uh, which is my game, by the way. That chapter is 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 it. Like, and it's the pursuit. It's it's kind of like when 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 the police finally woke up and said, "This is our guy," and and so now we're going to track him. And um, can you talk a little bit about that? Do you feel that they once they finally got their game together, that you know, I I thought the way you described it that. Quite frankly, to, to throw them a bone, this was some extraordinary police work. It was. It was great police work. And actually, what's really jarring about the police work, you know, there was, if not entirely around the clock, pretty close to around the clock surveillance of Bruce MacArthur. There, you know, were uh, yeah, basically search warrants executed to search his apartment, to search his van. There were good interviews being done. There were requests being made to Facebook and elsewhere. The work was like, by the book, and you know, even how they found him, just combing through security camera footage and piecing together little clues that ultimately helped identify his band. You know, this this is really good work. But what's what actually really sticks out to me is the fact that um, you know they managed to do it um, based only on the suspicion of one case, right? Yeah. So they only actually thought. He was responsible for the murder of Andrew Kinsman, ultimately the eighth victim. They didn't realize he was a serial killer until days before his eventual arrest, literally when he may have been attempting to kill somebody else. They may have stopped the murder oh, well, that's frightening. minutes yeah. before it occurred. Yeah, that, that, that chapter is, or that section in, in his home is amazing. Yeah, it's, it's chilling, I mean, <laughs> to be fair. But, you know, I, again, I, it's, I sort of come back to the fact of it, they had to do an awful lot of convincing themselves that this was not a serial killer to think, to convince themselves that he was only responsible for one homicide. And, you know, literally until a week before he was arrested, the Toronto Police Service assumed he had killed one person and that the other four missing persons cases were just still people vacating their lives or whatever. That's, you know, that's a weird indictment yeah. of the, 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 the ethos around this investigation. Well, I mean, and, and I'm, you know, I'm skipping that whole part, but the, the, the long history of the police persecution of the gay community in, in Toronto, all, all the way back to the 70s, which is, again, I, anything that goes into that kind of social history, I love, and you do a great job of it um 
Okay, you want to talk a little bit about that? I find it interesting. I'd love for you to, you know, the bathhouses and that kind of thing, and and uh, and police just just beating up people for no cause. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's, it's it's a history I definitely enjoyed um, delving into. I think it's a, it's a history that is it's not unique to the, to the community, though. You know, I think the one thing I, I didn't want to come across was this idea that all of the morality raids and the enforcement of, you know, sort of outdated orders against gay bars or gay bathhouses, that you know, that was sort of unique to the queer community. In some ways it is, for sure. But, you know, when I was working on this book, you know, one, one, one other book I picked up was a book called, called Ghetto Side by Jill Evoy. And it is this really good breakdown of the ways in which communities that are not of the majority, so queer communities, black communities, indigenous communities, often find themselves over-policed but underprotected. So in the case of the gay village, going back to the 80s... That, that, the 70s, that's, you said that so well. Yes. Yeah. Going back to the 70s or 80s, you, know, you, you see these cases where police are picking up random people off the street and harassing them, or even going to a reported burglary and arresting people in their own homes on suspicion of prostitution, or raiding bathhouses. At the same time, they have this, they have this slew of homicides that they don't solve, or they do a really, frankly, piss-poor job of solving. So you get this scenario where the police spend a huge amount of money harassing and persecuting and surveilling a community, but when they're called on to solve cases of violence against them, eh, they, do a, they do a very subpar job. You know, and and it, I think people assume just because police are present that you'll get better public safety outcomes. You know, this is the whole broken window yeah. philosophy of policing. <laughs> yeah. But it doesn't work. It doesn't happen that way. We know that from black majority neighborhoods in the U.S. We know that from indigenous communities. And we know that from the queer community. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think we get to know MacArthur in his early life. You know, you paint that picture of his upbringing in southern Ontario and in all of that, um, which, again, is very um, uh, satisfying. I kind of feel that we, we, but in terms of his, his motives and all that, or, or his life during the 2010s, we don't fully know. And I wonder how much of that is because it didn't come out in trial uh, or how much of that is because we just don't know or how much of that is because <laughs> you didn't want to discuss it. That, um, what about that? It, it's a mix. I mean, the reality is he's not a very interesting guy. Mm. You know, I, I have certainly a lot of interviews with folks who were giving me the sort of play-by-play -play of what he did in 2010 and 2012. But it's just not... It's not interesting. I mean, uh -huh. he has all the hallmarks. I'm not going to say he was the friendly guy next door who everyone liked, because in many respects, he was an asshole. Yeah. And in many respects, he was manipulative and controlling, and I include a little bit of that in the book. But it also just wasn't compelling. It's not interesting. He's not a fascinating guy. He's not a criminal genius. He's not a mastermind. He didn't convince everyone that he was a normal guy. You know, he, he actually... He, he was so assuming that he had people giving police his name in 2013 saying, you should look into this guy. Yeah. So he part of it was, it was cut because it's not that fascinating. And I, I'm sure you're all too familiar with this, but in most cases, serial killers or serial offenders are in a way with it, not because they're cunning and clever, but because police are incompetent or police are unwilling to follow the trails that they need to. That's, or systems are yes. so broken that it lets them get away with it. Yes, that, that they just, exactly. It, it, people doing fairly mundane th things, uh, you know. Um, MacArthur was like this. Well, what did he do? Well, he went to a bar, he picked somebody up, he had sex with them, he went home. Oh, I, I left out the part where he killed one of them. I mean, it, it was sort yeah. of very, and yeah, the, I do see that kind of pattern. There's not, there's, there's nothing really... There's something, you know, the word says predatorial about it. And, you know, you know how an animal 
hunts and finds its food is not particularly interesting either. You actually ever watched it? Um, yeah, I, I think it's a good it's a good sort of parable for why a lot of this true crime industry is so horrible. It's that you know when you actually sit and watch some of these documentaries or listen to the podcasts or read some of these books, if you really if you really stare at it. You can see the tricks they've used to make these killers seem more interesting than they are. Because that's what you need in an arc for one of these stories, is an explanation for why this person is so capable of getting away with it, or how they eluded authorities, or how they tricked all their friends and neighbors. Well, it's really a setup for the police being heroes, right? Yeah, exactly. Or that the police managed to overcome all of of the, the, the clever ways in which they eluded capture. But it, it, that is that is a real misdirection in most respects. There are certainly some serial killers who are brilliant and uh, incredibly adept at eluding detection, but the vast, vast majority are dumb, not remarkable criminals who got away with it, not because of their own skill, but because systems weren't working or weren't designed to work. So... I think it could have done that, but why? I mean, frankly, why? And the other part of it is, too, that if you convince people that these serial killers are so, you know, another another class of human being, that they're almost impossible to detect and stop, well, then we sort of give up on trying to fix it, don't we? We sort of, we sort of concede defeat and admit that nothing can be done. We should just keep the status quo. But when you turn it on its head and say... Serial killers are no more adept or, you know, clever or, or masterful than burglars or kidnappers or, you know, drunk drivers. The only reason they get away with it is because our policing system isn't geared towards catching them. Well, then you have to start confronting the fact that things need to start changing. That's exactly, that's ex- ex- yeah, I mean, uh, the, the, the guy we profiled, Luke Gregoire, was a bumbling, impulsive buffoon. Mm-hmm. Who who was was just driven by his instincts and could have been caught easily many times, many yeah. times. Yeah. And that's always it's the same for Robert Picton. One of Robert Picton's victims went to police to say that he had attacked her and to say that he would likely have killed other girls. Uh-huh. Well, then she didn't, she wasn't listened to. Yeah. Yeah. Justin, we're we're almost. At the end of the hour, is, is there anything we're missing? Is there anything you'd like to tell us about about this book or other projects um, that might um, might arouse our interests in this time when we need stimulation and it doesn't have to be entertainment? Well, you know, obviously I, I, I worked on a, an offshoot of this project for the CBC, for a CBC podcast called The Village, um, that traces back a lot of those unsolved homicides dating back to the 1970s. Um, and, and we're exploring the possibility of, of sort of adapting that model into other directions, whether that's other cities or other timelines or other um, groups of people. And I think there is a lot of promise there. I, you know, I, I think I would say to people, if, if you want to go out and start spending time or resources dealing with true crime stories in a thoughtful and respectful way, you don't need to be sitting by the phone waiting for that next unsolved case. Every city in North America, and I imagine Europe, has a litany of cold cases, many of which could be strung together in a potentially compelling way, or potentially accurate way, I should say, um, that could point to the possibility of, of either a serial killer operating or of, of a series of, of, of murders targeting groups of people that were allowed to go unsolved. The one thing that really stru- stood out for me in working on these, these cold cases is that there was actually a really pervasive belief that a serial killer was operating in Toronto in the 1970s and 80s targeting gay men. What we found is actually probably there wasn't, but what there was was an understood tact in the city that if you killed a gay man, you would never be arrested, you would never be investigated, you would never be charged, you would never be convicted, and if you were convicted, you'd probably only get five to ten years at most, not even including parole. And you'd get away with it, basically. So, 
I think there's a lot of those stories to tell everywhere. And I would, I would, I would push people if you're interested in, in pursuing that to go ask those questions, to go see if there is something you can learn about your own city's history that I think could actually tell you an awful lot about the city's present. And, you know, who knows if, if, if a serial killer was in fact active in the seventies or eighties or nineties or two thousands, they may still be. I think you can, you can potentially do a lot of good by solving cold cases. And I think they deserve attention. And unfortunately, all too often, city police forces have been happy to expand their anti-drug operations and their anti-terror operations and their anti-money on and their cyber and so on and so forth, and have been loath to put money into solving cold case homicides, never mind cold case missing persons files. So... I, I, I would not encourage every layperson to go start a true crime podcast, but I would say if you're interested in that field anyway, probably a lot to be learned um, going back to some cases that have been forgotten. You know, Justin, I think that's a great call to action. I sincerely do. And in this country, in the United States, I'll even give people a head start and a push to how to do that. There's a website called the Murder Accountability Project. It's called murderdata.org. And on that, what they've done, essentially it's a database of all the uniform crime reports from the FBI. You can search your, your town, your county, uh, all the way back to the, I think 1972, um, and get a list of all unsolved, solved cases. It doesn't identify the, the individual, but you can certainly, through a process of matching dates and, 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 Certain, certainly demographic data, match them through news sources. And that would, and, and, and in the majority of the cases, yes, a lot of them are unknown and desperately need the assistance of, of citizen uh, sleuths. And I think that's a much more productive use of time than telling everybody again your opinion on Israel Keys or, or BTK or the Zodiac, which none of us really need any more information on, quite frankly. <laughs> That's about right. <laughs> Justin, it, is, it has been a, a pleasure, and, and I want to leave it by saying I think everyone should read Missing from the Village. Uh, I thought it was, again, just a, a fantastic piece of, uh, you know, not only a piece on social justice and criminal justice, social science, as I said, uh, um, um, a great read, and uh, I, I, I hope my listeners will pick it up and, and read it. Well, thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, have a great day, and thanks for joining us. Justin Ling, Missing from the Village, which is uh, on sale now. You can buy it online at uh, Amazon, at uh, Penguin Random House, uh, Chapters, Indigo orders, etc. That's our podcast for today. This has been Who Killed Teresa. If you like the podcast, please give us a high five-star rating on iTunes. Um, Social media, you can follow us. We're on Twitter at Teresa Lohr at T-H-E-R-E-S-A-A-L-L-O-R-E various other platforms including Facebook, uh, Instagram. Best place to find us is uh, the website TeresaLore.com T-H-E-R-E-S-A-A-L-O-E-R-E point com point com uh, That's all we have uh, this time. Again, who killed Teresa? I'm your host, John Elmore. Have yourself a great Great. Day. Know what your heart's for. Know what your heart's for. One man like me can never hold on. Then it's come. One man like me don't know how to behave at
just creep to a crawl and kiss me under each new Wednesday, October 6th, CSI, The Global Phenomenon, opens a brand new chapter in Las Vegas, and an existential threat calls the crime lab's legacy and future into question. A brilliant new team of investigators will enlist the help of friends from the past as they deploy the latest forensic techniques to do what they do best, follow the evidence, in order to preserve and serve justice in Sin City and uncover the truth. CSI Vegas series premiere Wednesday, October 6th on CBS. Experience gorgeous, lasting, high-quality hair color with Madison Reed. Find your perfect shade at madison-reed.com and get 10% off plus free shipping on your first color kit. Use code RADIO10.